You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Good morning, church. Good to be with you. A little over a week ago, July 16th, history was made at Wimbledon. Any tennis fans in here? All three of you. Great. Um, 20-year-old Spaniard Carlos Alcaraz snapped a 34-week win streak at Wimbledon by the prolific Serbian tennis giant Novak Djokovic. Uh, Alcaraz has stormed the tennis scene. He's already being heralded as like sort of the next great challenger to the so-called big four of tennis, which if you have any pulse on tennis, you know that includes Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and Andy Murray. I remember uh, it's been about 16, 17 years ago when we first came to this church. Jessica and I were part of a, a young life group at the time, 21 years old. And I remember one night... The guys in that group went to Walmart to buy tennis rackets because Roger Federer made tennis cool. And we were like, we're going to go play tennis. We were terrible at it. Uh, but, but I remember just thinking that like tennis was cool now because of this Roger Federer. And since then, uh, there, there hasn't really been anyone other than the big four that has come close to the greatness that they have achieved personally until now. Carlos Alcaraz is here. He doesn't seem to be leaving anytime soon. And so it got me thinking, who is the most famous tennis player of all time? For me, it's Federer. I, I mean, I, again, I can't remember anyone popularizing the sport as as much as he did. And I grew up in the era of like Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, John McEnroe, Boris Becker, Bjorn Borg. I sound like I'm a tennis fan. I'm really, I don't watch it that much, but I just remember these names because they were really big names in my childhood. But, but Federer has popularized tennis in a way that I, I can't imagine anyone else having done. And so I started looking around. I was curious, who is the most famous tennis player of all time? And I came across this study conducted by a guy named Cesar Hidalgo, who's the director of the Collective Learning Group, which is part of the MIT Learning Lab. And the goal of the study was actually not tennis. It didn't have anything to do with tennis. It was to determine how long famous people can expect to be remembered after they die. How long are people going to remember me? But in the study, what drew me to it was that part of the data set that they used included famous tennis players. And based on a wide-ranging statistical analysis, this group determined that the most famous tennis player of all time was actually the Frenchman René Lacoste, born in 1904, uh, inventor of the Lacoste shirt that is very prominent in tennis today. Uh, Incidentally, Federer was ranked number 20 on their list, which is fake news, by the way. Um, (laughs) But I... uh, They went on to develop several databases for top uh, categories, including movies, songs, sports stars, patents, using data from Billboard, Spotify, IMDb, Wikipedia, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and the American Physical Society. And the team actually published a paper in 2020. What they found was, and I quote, the universal decay of collective memory and attention concludes that people and things are kept alive through oral communication from about five to 30 years. So to put that in layman's terms, it means you can be extremely bright, you can be incredibly high performing and a little bit lucky and make it onto the global stage and really make a splash, amass millions of dollars, numerous accolades, and you can expect at best to be remembered roughly 30 years after you die. 
Sounds unbelievable at first. That sounds like, no, there's no way. It's got to be longer than that. But I mean, think about this for a minute. This, this tracks. So uh, I'm a child of the 90s. I remember in the 90s, Stairway to Heaven was still very sensationalized, right? One of the greatest songs of all time. Uh, now, in 2023, not as sensationalized. These young kids don't know. They don't know what's up. They, they, they have lost the, the, even Stairway is fading. These really, really like monumental works of art fading at this point. And, and so we don't remember well. I mean, I think that's really kind of the bottom line is, is we move on to sort of the next thing. And that is where I believe our discussion becomes relevant for our purposes here this morning. Because a major part of our faith as Christians involves remembering. It's a humongous, in fact, it's a fundamental part, I would argue, of our faith. And several scriptures speak to this. Psalm 77 verses 11 and 12 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Deuteronomy 6.12 says, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's an idea here to remember what God has done lest you forget it. God himself in Isaiah 46 verse 9, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So I want you to connect with a truth this morning that I want to sort of lay out, think about for a moment, and then we're going to build off of it for our time this morning. And that is this, that Christianity is more about remembering what God has done in the past than anticipating what God will do in the future. I want you to think about this for a moment. Christianity is more about remembering what God has done in the past than anticipating what God has done in the future. So many people in the modern age think about Christianity in terms of what God is doing presently and what he will do in the future. That's usually sort of the emphasis in a, in a lot of arenas, in a lot of modern church services and modern worship services. There is an, an anticipation of what God's about to do today or tomorrow or in the future or whatever. And certainly there is an aspect of future in our faith. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But we have resurrection. We have the second coming. We, they're, they're, God is alive and present and at work today in your life and tomorrow. No doubt about it. But overwhelmingly, Christianity has been historically anchored upon what God has done in the past, remembering the past, the past work of God in Christ, the past work of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which happened in the past. Our faith is primarily concerned with remembering. And this is reflected in much of what we do here in a, in a church service, specifically at Sitting on a Hill. For example, in our preaching, our philosophy of preaching is that preaching should be centered on and driven by the scriptures, the word of God. What is scripture? I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week in that message. We, we said that it's special revelation. It is God revealing himself in a very specific manner, talking about what God has done in the past, the actions of history that God has worked out. Scripture remembers the work of God. This is true in our Bible study ministry as well. We have Bible studies that meet during the 9 and the 1030 service and one on Wednesdays at 645. We are right now currently studying verse by verse through the gospel according to Luke, where every week we remember the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's evident in our worship here. So we, we do this in worship. We sang how great thou art a moment ago. In verse 1, he says, O Lord my God. When I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. There's, there's an idea of considering, thinking, contemplating, remembering the works of God in the past. 
and how they are evident in creation. And there's one practice of the church that is, I believe, entirely based on the past and remembering the past, and that is the practice of communion. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, says, and when he, talking about Jesus, had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus literally said, remember me when you do this. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment, the memorial aspect of this particular practice. But Paul goes on in verse 26, he says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you take communion, in other words, when you come to the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming something that happened in the past, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to go back to the gospel account, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 11, he's quoting something that has already taken place in the gospel account. So I want to go back to that, that initial passage, Matthew's account of it, where Jesus institutes this practice of the Lord's Supper and talk about the meaning behind it. We know that it's a practice that helps us remember the work of Christ. The question is, what exactly are we remembering? What is it about that moment or or that work of the past that we are to specifically remember? I believe we find a clear answer from Jesus in Matthew's account. So if you have your Bible, we have two primary texts this morning. We're going to be bouncing back and forth from one to the other. Turn to Matthew 26. That's going to be sort of our primary text. But we are going to be engaging with Exodus 12 as well. And also, spoiler alert, Exodus 24 and Leviticus 4. If you, if you want to mark those, you don't have to. I'm going to provide them up on the screen. But we're going to begin... And we're going to look through this passage, and then what I thought would be cool is after learning about the Lord's Supper, the significance of the Lord's Supper, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. And so I want you to begin to prepare your heart for that as well as we work through this. Let's look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, as always, before we jump in, I want to give you some context here, because context really matters to anything that you're studying in the Bible, and really anything for that matter. Look at verse 26. Notice it says, as they were eating. Uh, this is a detail that makes a lot of sense in the context of Matthew 26 as a whole. Uh, this is not just dinner time, right? They're not sitting here having pizza and hanging out. It's not boy time. This is a significant moment in the life of a Jewish individual. Anyone remember what they're doing here? Passover, absolutely. They're celebrating the Passover meal. Every year, Jewish people would gather together in their homes or in small groups with their loved ones, and they would celebrate a meal of remembrance for what God did specifically to bring them out of the bondage of Pharaoh and Egypt. And this is a practice that's first established in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus 12, God gives Moses a commandment, a set of commandments, in order to 
carry out this Passover meal. What they're to do is take an unblemished lamb. They are to sacrifice it. They are to paint the blood over the doorpost. Remember, there were the 10 plagues in Exodus. This is culminating into the final 10th plague where the angel of death is going to come and take the life of every firstborn son of every household in all of Egypt. So they are to take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost of their home so that when the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over their house and onto the next one. Hence the name Passover, okay? Beyond that, they're to take the lamb and prepare it in such a way where they are then to consume it. They have a meal together. They are to eat the entire thing. This event in Exodus is supremely important to the rest of the Old Testament and really, frankly, a lot of the New Testament as well. And it sets a precedent for the Jewish people. The people of God were not to just do this this one time before they make their exodus out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They were to do this every single year thereafter. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, it says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So every year, generation after generation, whether in Jerusalem or in exile, didn't matter where they were or what was going on, the people celebrated the Passover memorial meal. It was a humongous, fundamental part of their natural rhythms of life year to year. That is what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. They are eating a memorial meal, a meal that remembers what God did to bring his people out of the bondage of Egypt, out of slavery and under the grasp of Pharaoh into freedom. That's the context of Matthew 26. And it is an important context because in this meal, what Jesus does here would be seen as rather controversial. He's participating in centuries old practice with elements that have very, very clear meaning and he is redefining these major elements into something different and fuller. The body of the lamb, in other words, signifies something for the Jewish people, and he is going to redefine it to its fullest picture. The blood of the lamb signifies something to the Jewish audience, and Jesus gives its fuller definition to each of them. So let's begin. We're going to look at and consider the picture of the lamb's body. Look again at verse 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So the first element that's highlighted here is the bread. The bread was a, a, a really important central part of the, the cedar meal or the memorial Passover meal. It's important to note that this was not like a French baguette, right? It wasn't like a nice jalapeno cheddar ciabatta, okay? Um, anyone hungry? Uh, this was unleavened bread. It was unleavened bread, not particularly good bread to taste, to eat. And there's a reason for that. Everything in this meal, as outlined in Exodus 12, had a, a sense of, of urgency to it. It had to be done quickly. The lamb was cooked in a method that was very quick. It would cook the meat very fast. You would eat the meat very fast. Important, because uh, if you cook an entire lamb in the ancient world, it's only going to be good for a few hours. You have no real way of, like, there's no refrigerators or freezers. You can't preserve this stuff much beyond the meal itself. And so the way they cook this thing, it's the whole lamb is to be cooked. The whole lamb is to be consumed because it's not going to be good after that. The bread in the ancient world would usually be baked with leaven in it, which would, of course, make it rise, uh, taste better. But leaven takes time. And they didn't have time. Time was not a luxury that they were afforded at this point. And so they used unleavened bread 
in order to make it quickly so that they could eat the meal with haste. This is why, incidentally, we use unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper today. There's a reason for that. It's not just because we like punishing you with stuff that tastes like cardboard, right? Uh, It's a detail that connects to the story. There's something about the tangible elements of the supper that are supposed to conjure in your mind something big and important. We're going to talk about what particularly here. If you go uh, to Deuteronomy 16, it recounts the Passover as well. And in verse 3, it refers to this unleavened bread specifically as the bread of affliction. Uh, That's how bad it tastes. It was afflicting bread, right? Again, there's a reason for this. The bread was meant to not taste good because it's meant to conjure something bad. It's meant to conjure memories of slavery. When you eat the unleavened bread, you remember the bitterness of life in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, the cruelty of Pharaoh. You remember the punishment of life in a kingdom of people that hated you and were hostile towards you. That's what the bread represents. It's supposed to conjure all of that. That's why this is so controversial because Jesus totally redefines this. He says, when you eat the bread during the Lord's Supper, you no longer remember the bitterness of Egypt. You remember my body broken in your place, the way he was whipped and beaten and crucified. You remember the nails that were driven through his hands and through his feet. The bread is no longer a picture of the bitterness of life in Israel, but the bitterness of sin that is afflicted upon the perfect son of God who stands in our place, broken for you. Amen. Yes. That you might have life. There's something that's just been fundamentally redefined, hasn't it? Let's look at the protection of the lamb's blood next. Look at verses 27 through 28. It says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. After breaking the bread, Jesus holds up a cup of wine, uh, which is customary. Sorry, Baptist, it wasn't Welch's grape juice. It was, uh, it was ancient wine. Again, he redefines what is happening in this part of the meal. And I want to warn you up front, this part of this passage is loaded with Old Testament imagery. I'm going to do my best to get through this in the limited time we have. I'm not even going to cover it all, but I want to give you uh, specifically two phrases that are really important to this. It's important to note up front that in the ancient world during Jesus' time, there were no chapters or verses in the Bible. So for, for one, there, there wasn't a, a Bible in the way that you understand it today. That doesn't, it's not bound into a codex form until minimally the fourth century. Uh, but, but we know for certain that they had scrolls, they had individual things. We talked last week, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip had a scroll of Isaiah. Uh, in those ancient texts, there were no chapters or verses. That's a modern invention to help us sort of know where things are. But they didn't have that then. And so in order to make a reference to an Old Testament story, if you wanted to allude to something or have your your hearers connect with a Old Testament story and what you're teaching, you had to make reference to very specific or unique words or phrases in that passage that your hearers would hear and go, oh, he's talking about that passage, right? It would connect in their minds and you could move forward. Jesus does this masterfully in this passage with several phrases that are unique to certain parts of the Old Testament. And there is a reason why he is connecting us with these phrases because they say something deeper about what the cup, the blood in the Lord's Supper represents. Let me show you a couple of examples. Here's the first phrase to note, the blood of the covenant. 
the blood of the covenant. This is uh, a really important phrase. So in Luke's gospel, by contrast, uh, he includes the word new, the new covenant in my blood is how Luke phrases it. Uh, this is almost certainly a reference to Jeremiah 31. Uh, it's the only place in the, new, in the Old Testament where new covenant is mentioned. But in Matthew, we just get blood of the covenant. And as it turns out, this is a very unique phrase as well. It's only found in one other place in the Old Testament, and that is in Exodus 24. Exodus 24 is a, a really important portion of the book of Exodus because it is here that God confirms his covenant to his people through the prophet Moses. So Moses gathers all the people together. Exodus 24 verse 3 says, he came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then it says, Moses made burnt offerings and then he made a peace offering. And the peace offering included the sacrifice of a bull. And in, in verses 6 through 8 of Exodus 24, it says, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Understand the imagery of what has just happened in this passage. The people literally say, we are going to take God at his word. This is faith. We're going to be obedient to what God has said. And then immediately following, they are covered by blood. And this blood ratifies the covenant that God has made with them. So when Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant, immediately they would have thought, this is covenant language. Jesus is establishing a covenant with us. He is making a covenant with his people in the same way that Israel covenanted with God through faith, a sacrifice, and being covered with blood, Jesus is establishing a covenant with his people through faith, sacrifice, and the covering of blood as represented in the cup at the Lord's Supper. But it goes deeper. Look at the next phrase. This is poured out. I mean, this is a phrase that as an English reader, you would, you would not think twice about, right? But it is significant. Again, turn to Leviticus 4 if you want to follow along. Again, the, the words will be on the screen where relevant. Uh, Leviticus 4 gives the details concerning how to make a sacrifice specifically for sin. So understand that in the Old Testament, there were a variety of different types of sacrifices that the people of God were to make throughout the year for different purposes. Different elements were used. Some were burnt offerings. Some were blood offerings. Uh, some were a little bit of both. You'd cook the animal. You'd eat. There was all kinds of things that would, that would go into this. And the first several chapters of the book of Leviticus, um, which I know you've all read several times, um, have specific instructions for the kinds of sacrifices you would need to make. Leviticus 4 is a very important sacrifice because it is the sacrifice for sin. It is a sacrifice that would temporarily atone for sin in the life of the person making the sacrifice. In this sacrifice, the priest would be the one who makes the sacrifice. And he would take the blood of the animal that was sacrificed, either a bull or a lamb, 
And he would put some of the blood on his fingers and he would put the blood on the horns of the altar. And then he would pour out the rest of the blood onto the base of the altar. And this is the only one where pouring out blood occurs. It occurs several times throughout Leviticus 4, actually. If you read the whole thing, he pours it out like three or four times, depending on the kind of sin offering that's being made, whether it's intentional or non-intentional. There was a sin offering for like the sins you aren't even aware that you sinned. We've got to make sure we cover those as well, right? All of it, all bases are covered. So the idea of pouring out blood in a sacrificial sense is something the disciples would have absolutely understood and connected with. This is a sin offering. In Leviticus 4.35, it actually speaks to what the sacrifice and the pouring out of blood accomplish. It says, And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Every time you take the cup at the Lord's Supper, you remember something. What is it that you're remembering? At least two things. You remember, one, that Jesus' blood has established a new covenant between you and God. You're no longer under the law of Moses. You're no longer on, under the law of works. You're under the law of grace under Christ. His blood has established this covenant with God and his people. And secondly, his blood is specifically a sin offering made on your behalf that you might be forgiven. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews goes on to tell us that this is a sin offering unlike any other sin offering because all the other sin offerings had to be made once a year. But Jesus' sin offering is made once and for all. There is no need. It's done. That's why when Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, what does he say? To die. it is finished. There's nothing else. The work is done. It's complete, clean, made new, paid for, done. You see, when you take the Lord's Supper, you're not just to remember the, the brutal scene of crucifixion. That's a part of it, certainly. But we have to remember the significance behind the elements that we are taking in. When we eat the bread, we remember the affliction of sin thrust upon the perfect Son of God that we might stand righteous before Him. When we drink the cup, we remember the covenant that God has established with the church and the forgiveness that we enjoy within Him. There's a picture in the Lamb's body. There's a protection that we find in the lamb's blood. Third, there's power in the lamb's promise. Look at verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now, what is Jesus saying here? This, this terminology, fruit of the vine, it's a word that uh, is often connected in the Bible to mean death. The cup, the wine, the wrath, it's usually it's used over and over again throughout the Old Testament and certainly in, think like the Garden of Gethsemane. This cup, you know, let it pass before me, Jesus says, but your will be done. It means death, but Jesus also, notice, he speaks of new wine. He says, I, 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 this is the last I'm going to drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you. What is new wine? It doesn't mean death in the Bible. It means blessing. It means joy. It means fellowship. And notice, who is he drinking this new wine with? With you. 
He says, not until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, verses 26 through 28, remember the impending death that Jesus is about to experience at this point in Matthew's gospel. But, but verse 29, it looks to the future. There's a promise for future hope, a future meal together with Jesus, a future feast with Jesus and his people. Just like Revelation 19 verses 6 through 8 depict the, 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 fe- the, the feast of the bridegroom, right? The banquet that's described in Matthew chapter 5 verse 6 that's for shadow this future moment when God with his people sits down once and for all to feast and glory and we're to be a part of it you see when we participate in the Lord's Supper we're not just remembering the last supper with the disciples the cool painting where everyone awkwardly sits on one side of the table right we're not just remembering Jesus dying although that is a part of it we're remembering the broken body the affliction thrust onto him the bitterness of sin and the bread. We remember the blood that establishes a new relationship with God through the church, through Jesus, and purchases forgiveness for sin. We remember more than that, that one day, though life is hard, we will celebrate a meal with Christ once more. Life throws a lot of curveballs at you, doesn't it? I don't need to tell you that. If you're coming to this church, I, I, I almost certainly don't need to tell you that. Life is hard, it gets very complicated really quickly. And it's fast paced, isn't it? It's, it's gotten faster, hasn't it? Right, yeah, I mean, exactly. You don't even remember Monday, probably. And you're already, if you're being honest, thinking about tomorrow. It's fast. So when you come to the Lord's table, here's what I wanna encourage you to do. I want you to slow down, take a big deep breath, Breathe out and then remember. Remember the broken body. Remember the blood of Christ that establishes fellowship between you and God, that purchases forgiveness of sin, that you might stand unashamed, free, loved, and accepted by Him. And then Look to the future, not to tomorrow, but to that future hope that though we eat now in this context, one day we eat together with him in glory, in eternity. We have the picture of the lamb's body, the protection of the lamb's blood, the power of the lamb's promise, and now we move into the practice of the lamb's people, which is to take the supper. Before we do that, another practice that is often connected to the Lord's Supper is that of baptism. And we get to celebrate that this morning as well. And so I want to, uh, yeah, bring up Leanne and, uh, and Miss Carrie. You're not ready. Pray for Leanne. I've heard of runaway brides. I've never heard of runaway baptized. I, Well, we have the table, though. We're, we're fine. We're, we're okay on time. We're, we're uh, you know, I do want to actually, I, I mentioned this at the end of the service, and I'll mention it now while Miss Leanne's getting ready. Um, if you've ever been to a Catholic mass, some of you have Roman Catholic backgrounds, um, you'll notice that when you take communion in a Catholic context, you uh, get the, the weird little wafer that's put in your mouth awkwardly. Um, you'll notice you don't drink from the cup priest drinks from the cup. The people do not. 
And that is because in the Roman Catholic context, uh, you have to have a priest to perform that. And the priest is the one that takes in the blood. I mean, I think you could make the argument that that's still true. The difference is that after the Reformation, the church rightly acknowledged again that you were all priests before God. If you are a Christian, Peter tells us, and as we sang in Is He Worthy this morning, he has made us a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood that we may connect with, have fellowship with, confess to God ourselves. We don't need an intercessor in that way. We have a high priest in Jesus Christ, and we are all priests under him. Miss Leanne, you ready now? You're totally fine. Everyone gets cold feet. Glad you changed your mind. So Leanne is coming in today. I met with her and spoke with her, and she's been a believer for some time now, but has just been convicted recently through several different avenues to be baptized. And uh, Carrie here is going to do the honors of actually baptizing her. Carrie's had a significant impact on her life. They work together. And uh, if you've ever been in a worship service and Kelsey has said, like, you may be seated, you'll hear, uh, what is it, Carrie, say it? Worship team. Thank you, worship team. Yeah. That's Carrie. Uh, that's right. So she's going to do the honors. Leanne, have you believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord? I do. Have you confessed with your mouth that he was resurrected by the Father? Well, upon that public profession of faith, my sister in Christ, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. While they are moving out, and we're going to put the top. This uh, baptistry serves as a communion table as well, dual focus. Um, I do also want to let you know that next week, I had intended on starting a new series, a quick four-week series. We're going to start it the week after because after doing a sermon on the Lord's Supper, I want to come back next week and do one on baptism as well. What does baptism signify? And the reason for that is we not only had uh, Leanne this morning, uh, Brianna Riggs was baptized for service. I think we have somewhere around seven baptisms next week. Yeah. And then a couple more after. And, uh, and I thought it would be a good thing for us to come back as a church and just think about the significance of baptism, what it means, uh, what it does not mean, uh, what the Bible says about it. And so we'll be doing that next week as well. Um, as we come to the Lord's table, I want to lay a couple of ground rules. First, a not so serious one, and then a couple of serious ones. One is... Uh, confession time from your pastor. I um, made the decision to do communion very late in this week. I was preaching on this passage already, and I thought it would be great to do that. And so we checked to make sure we had everything we needed, and we do. The, the Welch's grape juice and the unleavened crackers. What we failed to check, because we've had like thousands of them for years, are communion cups. And we ran out after first service. So we are using the COVID communions. And I want to just give you some instruction because they're a little weird. You're going to get one thing. The wafer is at the top. So you have to like peel the first thing back and that's the bread. And then you peel the second one back and that's the juice. 
It's not going to taste good. It's not supposed to. All right. Let me give you a couple of ground rules for this morning as they're passing these out. Number one is that communion is meant for Christians. It is meant for believers. Uh, It remembers a covenant that God has made with us. And so it stands to reason you need to be a part of that covenant in order to participate in this particular practice. I also want to remind you that it is a practice not meant to be entered into lightly. You are to consider within your conscience whether or not your heart is is right for this particular practice. If there is secret sin that you've been holding on to, if there is relational turmoil in your life that you have perhaps not worked through, then I would suggest abstaining until you work through those things or confess those things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 29, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So understand this is not the last time we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So if you are concerned with like, well, if I don't do it now, you know, I'm going to be left out. We're going to do it again in the fall when we do a night of worship. And so if you feel within your conscience that you should abstain this morning, no one will think less of you. I should think that's a sign of great spiritual maturity. Let's make sure everyone has their little, almost certainly not in the mind of the Lord when he did the Lord's Supper, but that's okay. Go ahead and open the top and take the styrofoam out. (laughs) Matthew 26, verse 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. You may eat. Lord, we thank you for the broken body, the bread of affliction. As we remember the wrath of God poured out onto Christ as he takes upon our sin and in turn gives us his righteousness. We stand before you free, forgiven because of Jesus in his broken body. And we thank you for that. Amen. Now, if you'll open that second tab. Matthew 26, verses 27 through 28. took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins you may drink Lord we thank you for the blood of the covenant that establishes a new relationship with you through faith in Jesus washes us clean, white as snow, that grants forgiveness. How we thank you and we love you for these pictures as we remember the work that you accomplished on our behalf that we might have life and freedom. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Uh, 
I look forward to coming back next week and talking through the other ordinance of baptism and celebrating baptism. Uh, I do want to remind you, if you're a newcomer here uh, in the last several weeks or, or maybe month or so, we do have our newcomers lunch right after this uh, over in the gym building, B101. I hope to see some of you there. God bless you. See you next week.